Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. So we've been looking through the book of Joshua. Um, we could have spent the rest of our lives looking at the book of Joshua, but uh, we've condensed it into a few short weeks and uh, we are at the very end. And so uh, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles or switch them on or look to the screen behind me, uh, we are going to read um, most of chapter 24. And it says this, Joshua assembled all of the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, and the officials of Israel and presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all of the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river. They worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron And I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help. And he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived to the east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Boah, and put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed over the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you and drove them out before you. Also with the two Amorite kings. You did not have to do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities which you did not build, and you live in them and eat from their vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers that they worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers that they served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, 
Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt and from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey among all the nations through which we have traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, whose land in which we live. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, Joshua said, throw away your foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to the people, This stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. It goes on and then says that Joshua sent the people away. And he died at the age of 110 and was buried at Shechem. I particularly want us to focus on verses 14 and 15, which say this. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, Then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, book of Joshua. We've been on this whistle-stop tour 
of the book of Joshua. As I said at the beginning of this series, we could spend two, three years looking at this incredible book. It is a prophetic forerunner to the life of Jesus. Everything in the life of Joshua is a prophetic forerunner to the life of Jesus. We've looked at that over the last few weeks. We started with the calling of Joshua, where he was told that he would lead the people of God to the place of blessing. He would lead them to the land of promise. He would lead them to the place where they were showered with blessings. They were living in a land of milk and honey, where they were living in such a place that they would shine like stars, such that the people of the land would see them and give glory to God. That's what Joshua was told. That was his calling. That was his purpose. And he was told, there will be difficulties, therefore be strong and courageous. He was told that repeatedly throughout his calling in that first chapter. Be strong and courageous. He was told, do not compromise the word of God. Do not swerve from it to the left or to the right, that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, then you will fulfill your calling. Then you will lead these people to inherit the land. And we live in a generation where people compromise the word of God and they wonder why they don't live in blessing. There can be no compromising the word of truth. We live in a world that says there are no absolutes. It's nonsense. The truth of God is absolute and it has a name and his name is Jesus. You cannot compromise the word of truth and expect the God of his covenant to fulfill his blessings upon you. It's a covenant because actually it's a two-way promise. And covenants come with a caveat. God says, if you are obedient to my word, then I will lavish blessings upon you. And yet we live in a generation where people want to live their own way, rewrite the word of God and still expect the blessings. And all that that does is it causes people around to say, well, you're no different from anybody else. Why would I want to follow your God? And I don't want to follow a God that's no different from the gods of this world. I want to follow the God who is the creator of the ends of the earth. I want to follow the one who gave life, the author of life, the perfecter of life, the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. He is my God. The bright and morning star, the holy one of Israel. He is my God. Amen? Just testing. And Joshua was told, if you are obedient without compromise to the word of God, then you will see the fullness of the blessings of God. Jesus lived a life without compromise. Jesus was perfect in all that he was and all that he said and all that he thought and all that he did. And the blessings of heaven were upon him. Everywhere he went, the demons fled. Everyone he prayed for was healed. The dead were raised to life. The blind saw, the deaf heard, the demons fled. And the truth of the gospel of God was proclaimed everywhere he went. Joshua was told right at the beginning of his ministry, you will lead these people to inherit the land that I have promised to their forefathers that I would give them. We looked at purity and breakthrough when we got to Jericho. We saw there that purity releases power. I know from my own experience 
that the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, when you are seeking to live a life of purity without compromise, then the power of the anointing of the Spirit of God comes upon the gifts that he has given you, and there is explosive power. And I also know that when there are moments of compromise, when there are moments where I'm not seeking to live a holy life, when there's moments where I'm seeking to go my own way, God in his grace does not remove the gifts and the calling because they are without repentance, but there is not the flow of the anointing or the power. Purity releases power. We thought about overcoming sin. We thought about how even hidden and secret sin affects the entire body. Achan wanted to take hold of the blessings that didn't actually belong to him rather than simply taking those that God was going to give to him in the fullness of time. He tried to accelerate things to get to the place that God had promised him ahead of time. And so often people try to do that. Wait for God's timing, church. His timing is perfect. And if you try and shortcut things, I tell you, you'll get there a lot slower in the end. And you may not get there at all. You might get a small blessing rather than the great blessing that God had intended for you. Always, always trust not only the word of the Lord, but the timing of God. Because his ways are perfect and his timing is perfect. And hidden sin affects the entire body. If I have hidden sin in my life, it affects you. I need to deal with my sin for your sake, not just my own. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. We thought about taking hold of God's blessings in chapters 14 through 19. We thought about walking in the blessings. And we thought about sin and holiness. It's quite an amazing book. And throughout this book, this book of Joshua, there is a, a thread, a golden thread, all the way through about holiness and purity. We can be empowered, if we live like that, to overcome opposition. And by that, please understand this correctly. Overcoming opposition does not mean that you can outsmart someone who disagrees with you. We're talking about overcoming the enemy, the opposition that comes from the enemy's camp. We can overcome opposition. We can overcome sin. Now, the trouble with sin is that it's actually quite nice. I like sin. I don't like sinning, but I do like sin. You see, it wouldn't be tempting to me if it wasn't something about it that was appealing. There'd be absolutely no problem at all if sin was repulsive in every single manifestation of it. I just wouldn't do it. There must be something inherently attractive about it for us to keep doing it. I don't like sinning, but there's certain sins I do like. And the sins that I like will probably be different from the sins that you like, which makes it all the more complicated. But we are empowered to overcome every sin. And it is possible, it is possible to live overcoming every sin. Jesus was fully human. That means he was exactly the same as you and me. 
Therefore, it is possible to live overcoming sin. Don't fall for the lie of the enemy that says, oh, well, while you're on earth, you'll always be a sinner. I'm a child of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. Jesus died to pay the price for my sin, to set me free from its grips, not to give me an excuse and a license to continue sinning. It is possible to live a life free of sin. And that's what releases power and purity. We're empowered to live a life, to use the word that Sam used last week, of otherness, holy, set apart to God, finally free from slavery to Egypt, free from the wandering mentality of the wilderness, free to actually embrace our birthright as children of God, free and empowered to take hold of all of the treasures of heaven and live in the blessings of them. Amen? That sort of slight pause was a cue for an amen. They did it better for you than they did for me. You make better points. <laughs> yeah, more humility, Lord. <laughs> I believe that we all want that power and we all want the blessing I mean who in their right mind wouldn't I, I want to live like Jesus don't you I, I want to live a life like Jesus I want all the power that Jesus had and I want to enjoy all the blessings that Jesus enjoyed because he died to make them available to me that's not a trick question by the way I genuinely want all of those things. Anybody else, or is it just me? Four or five of you. What is your favorite thing that Jesus did in his life? I don't mean his death and his resurrection. I mean, what's the favorite thing that he did during his life? It's not a rhetorical question. Let's get some examples. For me, I love walking on water. Anybody else? At the back. Shout out for me. Catching all the fish, the miraculous catch of fish. Do you know, when I asked this in the first service, the first person to speak was an elder, and they said, turning water into wine. <laughs> Sally. The woman at the well. Yeah, the prophetic revelation, setting her free. What else? Healing the sick. Healing the sick. Healing the sick. Casting out demons. Someone said something about the dead over here. Raising the dead. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Who'd like to raise people from the dead? Who wants to put all funeral directors out of business? That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Healing the sick, empty the hospitals, help the NHS. Wouldn't that be amazing? It would be. Do Ruth out of a job, that would be good. So why aren't we doing it? We are empowered. And if we do not compromise the word of truth, the word of God tells us that we're empowered to do those things. Now the reality is there's a cost involved. And this is where it gets difficult. Because for some people the cost is just too much to pay. Jesus talked about the cost. He talked about it, you can read it in Luke 14 if you want to. He said you wouldn't set about building a tower without first working out if you could afford to pay for it. Yeah, because if you started to build a tower and you ran out of money halfway through and you only built half of it, you'd look an idiot. Yeah, and you'd be a public disgrace and everyone would laugh at you. And you wouldn't do that. Similarly, if you were a king, 
You would not go to war with another king without first being pretty convinced you could win the battle. You, you check it out first. So Jesus was saying, understand what you're getting into. Understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Understand the cost. You know, we talk about amazing Christians that there are around the world, you know, through the generations, but particularly in our own time, in our generation. We, we look and see some of the people that God is using in remarkable ways. We have been privileged to have some of them here, by the way. I think immediately of Heidi Baker. She and her ministry, they have 11,000 churches currently that they've planted. Yes, you heard me correctly. 11,000 churches that they have planted. In their ministry, they see people healed supernaturally every single day. People come to faith every time the gospel is proclaimed. Most weeks, there are testimonies of someone being raised from the dead through their ministry. This is like reading the book of Acts. It's like reading the gospels. And it's happening in our generation. And I look at someone like Heidi. I think, I want to be like Heidi. I want to live a life like that. But I've had the privilege of chatting to Heidi. And I know that she will not leave her house in a morning until she has spent at least three hours alone with Heavenly Father. At least three hours. She aims for five, but three is the minimum. Before she goes out to work in the morning. And she doesn't start her day at three o'clock in the afternoon either. She's usually the first one out of the house. There's a cost. And some of us find it hard to spend five minutes a day in prayer. And we wonder why we're not seeing the power of God at work in us. There's a cost. It's time to shine. But unless you wear the armour of God, and unless your crown is shiny, you're not going to shine. You're just going to look like everybody else in the world. You see, we live in a world that's filled with people that don't know Jesus, and we have so many churches where people are living as though they don't know Jesus. Heidi Baker says, stop for the one. The one who's in front of you. Always have time for the person that you come across in front of you. No matter what you're doing, are you willing to stop and give time to that one who needs a loving embrace? Have you got time to pray for that one who has a desperate need? Or are you so busy with what's going on in your life that you don't even notice the person in front of you? Imagine if we all did that. Imagine if we all lived like Jesus. All the Christians around the world, if we all lived like Jesus. Just imagine what that would look like. Well, I can tell you what it would look like, by the way. Look a bit like heaven. It looked like heaven on earth. And what on earth does that look like? Well, on earth, it looks pretty much like Jesus. Intimacy with God. Power to heal. Authority over demons. Wisdom, truth, integrity, and love. Don't be fooled by thinking that life like that will make everybody around you happy, by the way. Plenty of people dislike Jesus. 
There's a song that we used to sing when I was a teenager. I hate it. Apologies to the Iona community. But it's, will you come and follow me if I but call your name? It's a really annoying tune, and I've had it in my head all morning. And I'm not going to sing it, because then you'll have it stuck in your head, and you'll all hate me. But there's a line in that song that says, will you risk a hostile stare should your life attract or scare? Will you come and follow me if I but call your name? And the reality is, if you live a life that looks like Jesus, it does attract attention. You see, we're called to be lights in the darkness. Jesus actually said, please don't hide your light. And so many Christians say, oh, it's a very private matter. My faith is very private. No, it isn't. That's selfish. You're supposed to shine. Because there's people in the darkness that need to see the light. And unless you're shining, they won't see Jesus. We live in a culture where people are not going to come to church. The church has got to go to them. And unless we shine brightly in the darkness, the darkness is never going to understand the gospel. It's time to shine, church. So if you are living, thank you, if you are living as a Christian, if you are living as a Christian, you will shine. But not everybody will be happy about it. And just like with Jesus, it's often the religious types that get a bit stroppy. Some people were drawn to Jesus and some people were fearful of him. And you know why they were fearful? They were fearful because the compromised, lying lives they were living might be exposed. That's why they were fearful. Because they knew he was speaking truth. And they might be able to fool everybody around them, but you cannot fool the king of kings. The tragedy is this. If Jesus were to walk into a lot of churches Today, many of the occupants of those churches would feel desperately uncomfortable and they would not welcome him. If that sounds critical of other churches, I want to say this. I wasn't talking about other churches. If Jesus walked in here now, would you feel comfortable? Now, the reality is, we've just been singing worship songs and we've been praying and reading the Bible and we're proclaiming the word of God. I have to tell you, if Jesus walked in here right now, I would be very nervous. I take the teaching of his word so seriously. that In preparation for every message I give, I spend a lot of time seeking him. Whilst I'm preaching, I'm seeking him. Afterwards, I seek him. And if he walked in right now, I would be wanting to know, Jesus, am I doing okay? And by the way, I'm not looking for your approval in that. I'm looking for his. So I would be very nervous if Jesus were to walk in here right now because I would want to know that I am honoring him. I would want to be sure that the way I'm speaking about him brings him glory, the glory that he deserves. 
I've given my life to serving him. And I would want to know that he would say, you're doing okay. Actually, I don't want him to say you're doing okay. I want him to know I'm doing well. I want to live above the level of mediocrity. But sometimes we're in church and our attitude is not good. Sometimes we're in church and our attitude to the worship leader about their choice of songs or to the drummer about their volume or to the person on the words at the back who's missed a line. How dare they? Or to the person that's dimmed the lights too much or the person that hasn't dimmed them enough or to the person that hasn't put the chairs straight or the person that's made the coffee and not made it strong enough or made it too strong. It was so good today. Sometimes our attitude's not good. Sometimes our attitude is not good towards our small group leaders, to our pastorate leaders, to the staff team. Sometimes our attitude is not good to one another. And sometimes we're sitting in church and we're holding a grievance and if Jesus walked in, we know full well he would see it. There may be people sitting in this room this morning thinking, please Jesus, don't come back today. If you're ever thinking, Jesus, please don't come back today, ask yourself, why? Why? Why do I not want him to come back today? What is it I'm doing wrong? What does my attitude need to be revised and put right? I want Jesus to come back. He is coming back, by the way. I suspect the reality is that many Christians would be quite comfortable, though, if Jesus walked in while they were worshipping. Yes, he caught me doing something right. <laughs> what about last night? What about this last week when you were alone and nobody else saw what you were doing or thinking or watching? What about if Jesus walked in then? What about what you're planning to get back to later this week when no one's watching or thinking anyone else can see? What if Jesus walks in then? If there is anything, anything that you would think, oh, I would not want Jesus to walk in on, then it is wrong! Do not compromise the word of truth. If there is a single thing in your life, even attitude, a thought that you would rather Jesus not walk in the middle of, guess who needs to change? Because it isn't him. Oh, but Chris, it's so hard. Called the cost of following Jesus. But Jesus demonstrated that it's possible. More importantly, that's what he's called you to. Weigh up the cost. Weigh up the cost. You see, one of the things, this golden thread throughout the book of Joshua, is about the power of hidden and secret sin. Secret sin 
damages everybody else in the body. Do not believe the lie that says, well, if nobody else knows about it and it doesn't affect them, it won't hurt them. That is nonsense. It's a lie of the enemy. And just because something that looks good and nice and shiny on the outside doesn't mean that it's pure good fruit on the inside. I remember many years ago, many, 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 many years ago, when I was a child, I went scrumping. Anybody know what scrumping is? There's an age divide going on here. There's some young people that are looking at me blankly. It's, it's basically, let me explain. It's when you climb over a fence into an orchard that does not belong to you and you borrow the apples with no intention of giving them back. It's called stealing, yes. So I remember when I was a child going scrumping with my brother and his friend, my older brother and his friend. And so we went into the, to the orchard. It was just off Cottingham Road in Moulton. I remember it vividly. And my brother would say to me, you're young and quick and agile. You go up the tree. And I would go up the tree and my brother and his friend would hold a coat stretched out beneath the tree. And I would pick the apples and drop them into the coat so they didn't get bruised as they fell to the floor. We did this a few times. And I remember on one particular occasion, picking an apple, looking down, ready to drop it, and my brother and his friend were not there. And I saw them running off. <laughs> Moments later, I heard the farmer come running in. I learned that it wasn't anything to do with being quick and agile that I was sent up the tree. It's because if you're on the floor, you can get out quicker and not get caught. Lord, help me to forgive my brother and his friend. Well, what I remember about that tree was that I sat up that tree for a while waiting for the farmer to go because he hadn't seen me. Or so I thought. But I sat up that tree for quite a while while he was chasing my brother off down the lane. And then he came back and he just sort of hung around in the orchard for a while. I think I just thought at the time he was enjoying the sunshine. So I decided that the thing to do was to, you know, eat an apple. After all, that's what I'd gone there for. <laughs> so I picked an apple and I sat on this branch, my feet dangling down, swinging. And it looked a really nice apple. And I remember vividly biting into this apple and discovering that the inside of this apple was not as nice as the outside was. It was maggot infested. There's only one thing worse than finding a maggot in your apple, and that's finding half a maggot in your apple. And that's what I found that day. I spat it out. At that point, the farmer heard me. <laughs> I probably ought to complete that story because otherwise you're going to wonder what happened. 
the farmer came up to me and he said, I'm not sure how long you're intending to stay up that tree, he says, but actually, he says, I'm more concerned about your big brother who ran off and left you, he said. If you want apples, come and see me, he says, you can have apples, he said. But he says, tell your brother if I catch him. <laughs> I shan't complete that sentence. Sometimes the fruit can look good on the outside. Sometimes the body of Christ can put up this facade. And as Christians, we can put up a facade. And as churches, we can put up a facade. But if we allow something to eat away at the core, then the whole fruit is ruined. And the reason the Bible talks in the image of the, the, the bride of Christ being the body Talks about that, I'm mixing my metaphors. The body of Christ is that actually, if something happens to one part of the body, it affects the entire body. Men know this better than women. Because I know if I stub my toe, my entire body is in agony. Even my earlobes start to hurt. Women don't seem to understand that. They just get on with it. It is just a bit of a pain, just don't worry about it. They just get on with it. I know this is a sweeping generalization, but generalizations are generally true. That's why they're called generalizations. But if part of the body hurts, every part of the body is affected. And if there is something which is secret and hidden, the entire body is affected. Because we are in a covenantal relationship, not only with God, but with one another. So if you are choosing to do something which is damaging, then the entire body is spiritually affected and relationally damaged. Sam talked about it last week. It's called relational dysfunction. Every one of us is affected by the sin of each other. And we cannot afford to have that mentality of saying, well, if they didn't see it, if nobody knows about it, it won't affect anybody else. Your secret hidden sin, my secret hidden sin, it is always going to affect the entire body. It's not just me that it's damaging. It's the entire body. That's why Joshua talked about holiness. That's why he said to the people, if you want to live in the land and more than that, take possession of the land. If you want to take hold of your rightful inheritance, then you must not compromise. Joshua 24, verse 28. After Joshua had reminded the people of where they'd come from, reminded the people of everything that God had done, he then said, he sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. Notice that. He sent the living to their inheritance. Take hold of it, he's saying. Take hold of it now that you might know the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says, go take it. It's rightfully yours. But he said, throw away the gods of your forefathers, the ones they worshipped 
beyond the river and in Egypt. The sin of Egypt was when the world became more attractive than God. When status and security and possessions were more important than God. None of those things in and of themselves are wrong. The Bible does not tell us that wealth is wrong. On the contrary, it talks to us about a God who wants to prosper us. It's when the love of money becomes more important to us than the love of God that the problems start to come in. And the sin of the wilderness was the sin of having a wandering, rebellious, stubborn heart. I'm sure that doesn't apply to any of us. Do not choose to be united with any of those sins. Don't make an allegiance with them. Some use the phrase, don't be married to them. Don't join yourself with something that's going to be detrimental. Hebrews 12 talks about sin easily entangling us. It's like a snare. Sin always entangles. Sin always infects and affects. And left unchecked, sin is a death sentence. But, but Jesus... Jesus has paid the price for our sin. Not to give us a license to continue doing it. And we know that and we say amen to that. Oh yes, no, we mustn't keep doing it. But then we keep doing it. Why? Many, many years ago, and I've not asked permission to tell this story, but it's coming to my head and I'm going to risk it. Before we got married, Rachel worked with someone who was having an affair. And they went to Rachel and said to Rachel, I'm having an affair. And her immediate reaction was, well, then you better stop it. It's probably the last thing that person expected her to say. But it was the exact thing that that person needed her to say. It was the loving thing to say. Was it critical? No. Was it condemnatory? No. Was it truth? Yes. It's not okay. She said, what you're doing is not okay. And if I love you, and I become aware that you are doing something which is damaging you and anybody else around you, the loving thing is to tell you to stop it. But it doesn't make you popular. Speaking truth does not make you popular. Because people don't want truth. They want to be sold a cheap lie which says, it's okay, it's not really that bad which ultimately is going to do you far more harm than the pain of hearing the truth. Because the truth will set you free. Just imagine if all of us 
really did live like Jesus did. Just imagine the impact. Jesus was just one man. He only lived as a man on earth for just over 30 years. And only three years or so of that in public view. Look at the impact of the life of that one man. The entire world has been changed. Just imagine if there was millions of Jesuses walking around on the earth. Well, you probably know that the word Christian means little Christ. And, and currently, best estimates are that there's around about 2.18 billion little Christs, Christians, alive on the planet right now. The world population is about 7.7 .7 billion. That means a third, a third of the world's population are currently little Christs. Just imagine if every single one of those, if a third of the world's population actually lived like Jesus. Imagine that. We'd have this great commission thing sewn up in a week. Just imagine it. Now, some of you are making excuses right now in your mind as to why that can't possibly happen. There is no excuse. It's what we were called to do. Jesus said to the disciples, the things I've been doing, you will do these things and even greater things because if I go to the Father, you will receive Holy Spirit. Imagine a third of the world's population proclaiming the gospel every day. Imagine a third of the world's population healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, walking on water to demonstrate the power of God. Imagine that. All this theological arguing, all this religious nonsense would end in a heartbeat because truth would be revealed. And I tell you, Fleet Baptist Church, it's time to shine. It is time to shine. We talk about winning fleet for Jesus. If every one of us lived like Jesus, what is there, about 300 of us in this church all together if we're all here? If 300 people lived like Jesus in one town, if all of the other Christians in all of the other churches in this town, it's over 1,000 people, if over a thousand little Jesuses walked around in fleet, imagine, just imagine what that would look like. Well, it's what we're called to. And it's time to do it. It's time to shine. It's time to win fleet for Jesus. In fact, put it more accurately, it's time to win fleet with Jesus. It matters how we live, church. Individually and corporately, it matters. It's time to count the cost. We are in some very serious conversations about a potential new building. I believe God's giving us a home. Hallelujah.
when it's time for us to count the cost. We won't buy a building without thinking about the cost, will we? Because it's us that's going to pay for it between us. So we're going to think carefully about that. But how much more important is the way you live your life than any building could ever be? It's time to invest your life. It's time to count the cost and choose how you're going to spend the rest of your life. Investing in a new building? Yep, that's the easy bit. Investing in each other? That's the crucial bit. Committed to each other's spiritual growth? That's called love. Friends, we have an opportunity to sow everything we have into the kingdom of God. To sow your life into the kingdom. And you may be called to be working in a school or a shop or a hospital or on an aeroplane. I don't care where God's calling you to be. The principle is the same. It's time to sow your life into the kingdom. And it's time to say, what is the most important thing for me in my life? What actually matters most to me? That's what I'm going to spend the rest of my life on. I remember making a decision many, many years ago that despite the fact that there are so many things in this world that are holding appeal to me, I made a decision that actually I would just chase after Jesus for the rest of my days. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, if the way we as a church are seeking to serve the Lord seems undesirable to you, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Make a decision. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <laughs>